Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, there's a rap against Hillary Rodham Clinton, that she's cold, robotic, that was certainly not the persona she presented on her visit to Seattle this week. If Clinton were a robot, she'd be the rock'em sock'em variety, with a healthy dash of reflective and forward-thinking feminist, doting grandmother, and super-sharp political analyst. After they get their tax bill, you know, which they have been yearning for, I mean, can you imagine like waking up in the morning and saying, today, (laughs) today, I'm going to give the Koch brothers everything they've ever wanted. Ms. Clinton was on the road with her new book, What Happened? The work is a reflection on her failed run for president and how she is recovering from the loss. Clinton was, of course, the first female presidential candidate in the United States to be nominated by a major party. Here, former First Lady, Senator, and Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton addresses a sold-out, raucous crowd at the Paramount Theater, then chats with author Anne Lamott about a wide variety of political and social issues, and finally, the question of hope. The Seattle Theater Group presented Hillary Clinton live on December 11th. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here tonight. I love Seattle. Um, My mother, Nikki Lamont, Dorothy, Nora Wiles Lamont, and I shared a love of Hillary Clinton going back to, I don't even know how far back. And and then in 2000, she got ill and she'd had Alzheimer's for a while and she had to go into memory care. And so I'd see her almost every day and every day she'd say, any news on the woman who said yes? And um, it took me, and for about three days, I just played along with it and I'd say, All systems go, Mom. And then on about the fourth day, I realized that she was talking about Hillary Clinton, who had agreed to run for the New York um, senatorial seat. And then every single day for several months, any news on the woman who said yes? And, uh, And there always was. And there always will be. And so... Please join me in welcoming the woman who said yes. Thank you, thank you so very, very much. Thank you. 
Thank you. I am uh, I'm so happy to be here with all of you. It's always great to be back in Seattle, and I'm especially looking forward to talking with Annie Lamott, who I have uh, been a fan of for many years. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, thank you. And, and you know, I, I just want to make a few brief remarks before Annie and I start talking with each other about my book, uh, What Happened, because as I write in the book, uh, in the past, I've often felt like I had to be careful in public to keep my guard up. Well, those days are over. And tried to do is to pull the curtain back on one of the wildest elections in American history and to talk about moments that still frustrate me, uh, including in a chapter called Those Damn Emails, uh, <laughs> but also a lot of the moments that I want to remember forever, like the way it felt standing on that stage in Philadelphia and becoming the first woman to accept a major party's nomination for president. And I am still proud of the campaign we ran and the 65.8 million Americans who supported it. And of course, I am so honored and delighted to have won this city and this state. I, I have to say, though, that you know, writing this book was often a painful process. Um, ultimately, it was cathartic. It was even reinvigorating. Um, and so they, these days, when people say to me, well, how are you? I say, well, as a person, I'm OK. As an American, I'm really concerned. <laughs> and this book is about the future as much as the past. And I really hope that there are lessons in it that apply to everyone as well as to our country. And I just want briefly to touch on four. First, everyone gets knocked down. What matters is whether you get back up and keep going. And, you know, in those days and weeks after the election, I would be asked all the time, how did you even get out of bed? And I'll admit, there were times when I was tempted just to pull the covers over my head. Uh, but instead, I spent time with friends and family, especially my two grandchildren. I read a lot, especially mysteries, because the bad guy gets it in the end. And I watched a lot of HGTV. I went into a frenzy of organizing my closets. I played with my dogs, I did some yoga, including alternate nostril breathing. <laughs> and yes, I, I did have my fair share of Chardonnay, so. I also talk in the book about what my faith meant to me and how important it was in some of those very uh, dark 
uh, hours and days to have that to fall back on, and Annie and I will talk uh, about that as well. I started a new organization called Onward Together uh, to encourage the outpouring of grassroots activism and engagement. We're seeing it now across the country because really there is too much at stake for anybody to sit on the sidelines. And people have to keep speaking out about issues that matter in your lives and in the lives of people you know. Uh, you know, it's been more than two months now since Congress let the Children's Health Insurance Program expire. I came from Denver today where I did a book signing at the Tattered Cover Bookstore, and three people who went through that line told me what CHIP had meant to them and to their family. And it would just be such a disgrace if we allow nine million kids and their families to lose the security of health care. And, and of course, as we speak, the Republicans are trying to jam through a so-called tax plan uh, that manages to bust open the deficit without strengthening our economy. It is nothing but a giveaway to the wealthiest among us. It comes at the expense of everyone else. So whether it's health care for kids and families or uh, tax uh, changes that benefit those at the very top, these are issues that people have to be engaged in and speaking out about. And I really think we can turn the tide if enough of us uh, stay focused and don't lose heart about trying to beat back the mean-spiritedness that we see coming out of Washington. Now, the second lesson I want briefly to mention <clears throat> is this. The only way we will get sexism out of politics is to get more women into politics. <clears throat> Washington State is one of the places that has proven this. Your two women senators, your former woman governor. It really does matter, and I'm thrilled that uh, more and more women, particularly young women, are thinking about getting involved uh, in politics. And I would just say this, as I write in the book, this is not just about politics, even though my chapter is called on being a woman in politics. This is about business, it's about journalism, academia, whatever walk of life you're a part of. And the research is pretty clear. You know, for men, likability and professional success go hand in hand. In other words, the more successful a man becomes, the more people like him. With women, it's the exact opposite. The more professionally successful we are, the less people like us. And maybe some of you in this room have had that experience. Um, and there's another, there's another piece of it, because it's all under the rubric of ambition, you know, uh, which is fine for men, not so good for women. Women are seen favorably when we advocate for others, but unfavorably when we advocate for ourselves. And that really struck a chord with me, because historically, people like me when I'm serving in a supporting role when I'm serving as First Lady in the White House, or serving the people of New York in the Senate, or serving as a member of President Obama's cabinet. But the minute a woman, or in this case me, stands up and says, 
Now, I'd like the chance to lead. Oh, my goodness, everything changes. And I can't think of a single woman who doesn't have stories to tell. So yes, there are plenty of reasons why being a woman in politics can be frustrating and even infuriating, but it can also be deeply rewarding. Just by being at the table, you're bringing a perspective that might otherwise go overlooked. And really, one of the best examples of this was last spring, when we all saw pictures of groups of elderly white men getting together to make decisions about the health care that women need. Remember those pictures? Um, and, and that kind of continues. Um, and it's something that uh, you know, we just have to be speaking out against. I've been inspired by the women and girls that I've met across the country over the last uh, two and a half months. They're stepping up to lead. I love it when little girls come to my book signings and they're wearing pantsuits and Wonder Woman costumes. <laughs> and more than 22,000 women have signed up for candidate training programs. And I want to give a big shout out to groups like Emily's List and Emerge America and Run for Something. So I hope women of all ages will read this book and be inspired uh, to get involved. And not everybody will run for office, although I hope many will, but to be part of campaigns, to be active citizens, to be engaged, uh, getting into the arena. We need you now more than ever. The third lesson is this. The forces at work in the 2016 election are still with us. It was a perfect storm, deep currents of anger and resentment flowing through our culture, a political press that told voters my emails were the most important story, the unprecedented intervention in the election by the FBI, and the information warfare waged from within the Kremlin. Now, what we've learned about Russian interference in the election is more than alarming. It is a clear and present danger to Western democracy, and it is right out of Putin's playbook. You know, that's why I wrote a whole chapter about it, because when I was writing the book, there were still many people who were saying, oh, come on, it wasn't that big a deal, you know, we don't know what happened, it's so confusing. So I tried to write a chapter which was up to date as of the time I turned in the manuscript, you know, last uh, July. But here's what we know. We know that Russian agents used Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, even Pinterest, for goodness sakes, uh, to place targeted attack ads and negative stories. Now, they were intended not only to hurt me, but to fan the flames of division within our society. Russians posed as Americans, pretending to be gun rights and Black Lives Matter activists to stir people up. They even held phony demonstrations. And what's more, the propaganda was aimed directly at so-called undecided voters, soft uh, Clinton supporters who might be persuaded to back a third-party candidate or not vote at all. But this isn't just about what happened back in 2016. It's about what's happening right now. The Russians are still playing on anything and everything they can to turn Americans against each other. This is bigger than one candidate, one election, 
even one country. And that's why we should be doing everything we can to confront this urgent threat to our national security and our democracy. You know, every president swears an oath to faithfully execute the law and defend our Constitution. This president should do his job. And And the rest of us have to keep up the pressure and demand that we get to the bottom of what happened to protect ourselves. No foreign power in history has attacked the United States with so few consequences. And that puts us all at risk. And it's not only the Russians who influence the results of the election. You know, there's been talk about rigged elections. Well, there's no better example of an attempt to rig an election than the massive voter suppression we've seen across America. This is the civil rights issue of our time. Laws that make it harder to vote disproportionately hurt minorities, students, and the elderly. It's not a coincidence, it's the intended effect of those laws, the people behind them, Republican governors and secretaries of state and legislatures, they literally want to shrink the electorate so that they keep people out who they know will not vote for them and their values. And this issue has not gotten enough attention. These laws are a blast from the Jim Crow past. Not only do they undermine people's civil rights, they undermine everything we stand for as a country. And Americans of every political party and ideology should be outraged. And more than that, we've got to do everything we can to educate voters about their rights and to end these craven efforts to keep people from exercising those rights at the ballot box. Now, the fourth and final lesson is this. It's very close to my heart. There is no such thing as an alternative fact. As I try to explain in the book, the Russian disinformation campaign was successful in part because America's, our natural defenses had been worn down over years by powerful interests that wanted to make it harder to distinguish between fact and fiction. When leaders deny things we can see with our own eyes, like the size of a crowd at the inauguration, <laughs> or when they refuse to accept settled science when it comes to urgent challenges like climate change, it's, it's not it's not just frustrating to all of us who pride ourselves on living in the fact-based universe. It is insidious and subversive to democracy. So where do we go from here? Well, I don't have all the answers. I wrote this book in part to lay out some of the questions to provide my best understanding. But when it comes to Russia, we need to get serious about cybersecurity. We need to get tough with Putin. And we must insist on truth and accuracy and hold elected leaders and the press accountable when they fail to meet that standard. And 
We must refuse to be silent in the face of racism, sexism, or attempts to normalize bigotry. So let's have the courage to stand up for human rights and women's rights and gay rights and democracy. And most of all, we must vote in every single election, not just the presidential ones. So I am going to do everything I can going forward, not, 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 as, not as a candidate, but as an active citizen. And, I have to tell you, all the people who have said for months, go away, keep quiet, no, no, not for you and not for me. I'm not going anywhere except right into the middle of the debate about our future. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I asked Huma. Um, do you think I should call her Secretary Clinton or can I call her Hillary? She said, oh, I think you can call her Hillary. Yeah, I think so too. And then I said, can I call her Honey? <laughs> and she said, maybe. So, anyway, um, <laughs> I love the chapter most on, on being a woman in politics. I love the book. and. Um, and I love independent bookstores. And if you want to get a really good seat in heaven, buy books from independent bookstores. <laughs> but I wonder if you could, for people that haven't read it or that are going to buy it tonight, I wonder if you could just talk more about that one chapter, the overview of, on being a woman in politics. You know, I realized when I was writing the book that um, the experiences that I had on being a woman in politics were not just unique to me. And I could, by describing some of what happened to me, uh, make some larger points about what happens to women who put themselves forward into uh, the political arena. And that became really clear to me, and I write about this, how during the campaign, I'd see, uh, I'd see members of the press, particularly you know, on TV, they'd interview somebody and, and the person would say, well, you know, uh, sure, I'd vote for a woman, just not that woman. And I used to think, well, prove it. Um, which woman would you vote for? Uh, and then as soon as the election was over, the attention of all the naysayers and the you know, sexists and misogynists who uh, we have uh, too many of, as we know, uh, they, they, began to, they began to go after other women in politics. So remember when Elizabeth Warren is standing on the floor of the Senate and she's reading a letter from Coretta Scott King during the debate about Jeff Sessions being nominated to be Attorney General. <clears throat> I was in the Senate for eight years. I got to serve with both uh, uh, Patty and Maria. So I loved being in the Senate. 
And I don't remember anybody ever being thrown off the floor before, mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, there was Mitch McConnell telling her to cease and desist from reading Coretta Scott King's letter, mm -hmm. and finally ordering her off the floor. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened immediately after that? One of her colleagues, a really good guy, a great male senator, comes onto the floor, gets the opportunity to speak, and he reads the letter from Coretta Scott King and nobody says anything. Mm -hmm. Or Kamala Harris, right? Was, was questioning, again, Jeff Sessions, in the uh, Intelligence uh, Committee, as I recall, and you know, she was asking him tough questions. I, re I remember that's perfectly appropriate. And she was told to stop. And then all of a sudden, I started seeing all these other attacks on women uh, in the Senate and women predominantly, but not exclusively, women in the uh, Democratic Party, because it's not exclusive. I remember, and I write about this, how, how Trump went after the only woman running in the Republican primary, remember? And then he went after women commentators and interviewers, and he created a permissibility mm -hmm. that we now see all over social media to go after women uh, in ways that are, you know, really personal and, and vicious. Uh, so part of what you have to do if you want to be in politics or in the public arena is just be determined that you are going to take criticism seriously but not personally. And here's what I mean by that. You know, sometimes you do have to learn from your critics. They can give you insight that you might not otherwise have or your friends might not see or share with you. So you can take something that someone says, okay, you know, I, maybe I can improve this or maybe I should, you know, do that better. That's one thing. But when it's aimed at undermining you and attacking who you are and what you stand for, then don't take it personally. Because usually the reason that someone's going after you is they have another agenda. And so I try to explain in the book some of the strategies that I've used over the years to withstand you know, a lot of uh, incoming critical attacks from all over. But it has gotten more intense because of social media. And therefore, you just really have to be prepared if you go out there to have yourself ready to deal with uh, those who are going to oppose you. And they will oppose you over anything, right? Mm -hmm. It does not matter what your hair looks like. They will figure out a way to criticize you for it. It does not matter what your voice sounds like. They will figure out a way to criticize. And they will use words and images that create this almost caricature and the final thing I would say about this is, I write about her very briefly in the book. There's a, an incredible uh, woman professor at Cambridge University uh, in uh, England who is one of the world's leading scholars on the classics. So she knows a lot about Greeks and Romans. And I got, I got to meet her a few years ago. And she talked to me about how 
This effort to tell women to shut up and not speak goes all the way back to the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. It is part of the historical DNA that we carry with us and that many people still have somewhere lodged in their brain that, you know, women shouldn't talk too much, women shouldn't talk too loud, and therefore we have to learn strategies about how to stand up for ourselves, speak for ourselves, but recognizing that a lot of people are coming from a really deep, uh, ancient you know, feeling about what's appropriate for women. So it's fascinating stuff, and I think we're making progress. And the best way we can deal with this, as I said earlier, is get more women on the stage, get more women speaking out, get more women standing up, and then it won't seem so unusual. Thank you, honey. <laughs> um, are we now in a constitutional crisis? Well, let me say this. I think there are, there are reasons to be worried. Um, a lot of the rhetoric and actions coming out of the administration have certainly been aimed at muzzling the press, at trying to affect uh, the uh, justice system, um, looking for ways to uh, find um, loopholes that the rules, uh, particularly around ethics, don't apply to people in the White House. So there have been many breaches, and I would argue ethical and legal breaches, but I wouldn't say that we're yet in a constitutional crisis, and I hope we don't get there. I hope that uh, enough people, particularly in the Republican Party, will prevent that from happening. And here's what I, I mean by that. Look, the ongoing investigation into uh, the behavior and actions of people connected with the Trump campaign and then the Trump administration have raised some really serious questions. And we have stopped, thankfully, we have stopped some of the worst things from happening. Uh, but it is incredibly troubling. And again, I say this should be troubling to Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, progressives, libertarians. I don't care what anybody calls him or herself. If you believe that the government of the United States should be led by people who put our country first, not promoting the interests of a foreign adversary over the interests of the United States. If you believe that people in the White House should not be using their positions to their own financial advantage and violating at least the, the ethical restraints that should be operational. And you can go down the line. This is a well-informed audience. You, you see what is going on. But I don't want to say we're yet there. And, and here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping uh, that uh, put aside the horrible policy, and I think this tax bill is horrible. It is horrible. It will explode the deficit and the debt. It will explode inequality. It takes, it takes all kinds of 
um, benefits and, and needs away from people and transfers wealth dramatically to the you know, richest of the rich and multinational corporations, all of that. It's terrible policy. You know, maybe there's an outside chance that it can still be derailed, and it should be. But once that is through, then what do the Republicans in Congress have to worry about? They have to worry about getting reelected. That seems to be what they worry about their donors, and they worry about getting reelected, basically. So if they have to start worrying about being reelected, they're going to wonder, is, is, this, is, is what's happening on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue good for me? Is it going to help me get reelected? Maybe I'd better speak out and stand up. And it was quite significant. I don't know what's going to happen in Alabama tomorrow. It's a lot closer, and it's a, it's a, much, it's a much more vigorous contest, thank goodness, than it ever could have thought to be. But when uh, Senator Shelby, who's been representing Alabama, first as a Democrat, then as a Republican, came out yesterday and said he would not vote for the Republican nominee. That was a significant action. So, look, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we will avoid a constitutional crisis because enough Republicans will put country over party and not let that happen. Yeah. Um. The whole world can hate America for its military might and its bullying and its extreme wealth and whatnot, but historically there's always been something really, really different about the State Department and that um, this was where wars were stopped. And, um, and democracy, and, I mean diplomacy and foreign ministries were always sacred. And um, you must have felt when you, when you were Secretary of State that you were really on the side of the angels. And I guess my question is, my, it's so creepy. Trump's, I mean this nicely, um, um, there's just something so creepy and disgusting about Trump's systematic dismantling and conscious dismantling of state and how perfectly it complements Russia's interests. Yes. And, um, and I wonder if you could just talk about that. And also, um, is what Tillerson has already done to state irreparable, or, or is it not quite as dire as I think it is? Well, you know, Annie, it's a really important question because you know I I was so honored to be Secretary of State for those four years under President Obama, and I. I, I had such respect for the professionals, the Foreign Service officers, the civil servants, many of whom had deep expertise in language and culture and history that is so important when you're dealing with such a big complex world like we have. So it's been disheartening and really troubling to see the way that first President Trump and the people around him in the White House discount diplomacy and kind of dismiss uh, the hard work that uh, diplomacy requires. But then to see Tillerson, uh, who has a, a view uh, that is so dangerous, it's not just creepy and disgusting, it's dangerous, and that is, let's get rid of the expertise that has been built up over decades. It takes a long time for someone to learn 
fluent Urdu or Pashto or Arabic or whatever it might be. And, you know, the exodus of those very people from the State Department is going to leave us without the resources that we need. We don't know necessarily when we will need them. That's why you have this apparatus in the first place, so that you're able to pull the levers and use the tools that uh, can avoid a crisis or resolve a conflict or further one of our values. You know, the, the biggest loss to me right now is that, yes, we, you know, we, we've had our challenges. I am certainly aware of those in our own country. But we always did try to stand for something bigger than ourselves and to be that beacon of, of freedom and hope and, and opportunity. Um, I, for example, took on the task of trying to make as a central core of our foreign policy the advancement of women's rights and responsibilities because I believed I, believe it, I believed it was the right thing to do, but I believed it was also in America's interest. And it was important that we stand up and, and be on the side of women struggling for economic and social and political and cultural rights. It's why I went to Geneva and said that, you know, gay rights are human rights and stood up for the, you know, the rights of, of, the, of the LGBT community because I knew, I mean, I was calling leaders, begging them not to pass laws that would criminalize uh, homosexuality to the extent that it could lead to the death penalty. I mean, that's what was going on. And we are still in this big, you know, ideological battle over, um, you know, the, the fair and equal treatment of um, the LGBT community. So these were things that we stood up for because we believed that they were part of America's mission in the world. Now, we also conducted, you know, we conducted very tough diplomacy. I was the one who kind of laid the groundwork and began the negotiations to try to put a lid on Iran's nuclear program because I thought trying to prevent Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon while they're engaged in all kinds of other aggressive behavior was really in America's interest. So you can go and look at how you have to be, you know, dealing with the world uh, as a whole and not just focused on one area and not just you know, trying to provide economic advantages to American companies. So I'm very, uh, I'm very disturbed by the attitude that uh, this White House has. I'm very disturbed by what uh, Tillerson has done. Even when he tried to practice diplomacy, he was undercut by uh, the president's tweets. Uh, you know, why, why are you trying to do diplomacy to end the threat from North Korea. You know, it'll never work, we'll take care of it. I mean, who says that? I mean, really, I, it, it, it's, it's so distressing. And, and of course, it plays right into the hands of Kim Jong-un. I mean, he thinks he's died and gone to heaven because he gets to trade insults with the President of the United States. It's, it's so counterproductive and dangerous. So I think that I don't think we've done irreparable harm, and I am somewhat heartened that even Republicans in the Senate are trying to prevent a lot of the worst cuts that Tillerson has proposed that would just decimate not just who's there now, but it shuts the pipeline for young people 
wanting to go into the Foreign Service. We, we saw a big surge of young people wanting to go into the Foreign Service when I was there and when, Senator, when Secretary Kerry was there. And now, you know, no, people don't want to, you know, they don't want to go in. They know they're not welcome. And so we're going to be, you know, hurting ourselves in the future. So it's, it's a, very, a very threatening uh, situation. And again, I hope that there are enough uh, people who understand the costs uh, that remain in the Senate on the Republican side to help prevent that over the next year. Uh, but in the face of it seeming clear that Russia longs for America in chaos, and so that Trump is colluding with that, it seems to my tiny princess self, um, <laughs> how do you how do you keep yourself from conspiracy thinking? <laughs> how do you keep yourself from thinking? that there is a vast right-wing right conspiracy. conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I did think that, but I didn't know that Russia was involved in it. Yeah, yeah I know. Um, what you said in the beginning is really important. And, you know, sometimes people will say to me, oh, you know, it's so confusing, all this Russia stuff, I can't keep track of the people, I don't know who did what, I don't know what it matters, and all that. Well, here's what I want people to understand. Um, I know Vladimir Putin. Part of the reason he so much wanted to uh, elect the other guy is because I know Vladimir Putin. And uh, I know that... You know, he really does, as Annie said, he really does want to undermine Western democracy. He wants to, and we, we saw it from the beginning, uh, he wants to end NATO, he wants to disrupt and dismantle the European Union, he wants people to doubt democracy and to yearn for authoritarian leadership. He has become uh, the, the symbol of uh, white supremacy, uh, and he has a uh, real following now in the United States among people who, uh, for whatever reason, feel compelled by this image of uh, a dictator. Today, at my book signing, I told Annie this backstage, I, I really love the book signings too because people even though it's not a lot of time, I try to give everybody a chance to say something and what's on their mind and what's bothering them. And so three generations came through, two little girls, their mom and their grandmother. So I greeted the little girls and asked them their names and I you know, said hello to the mother and then the grandmother said this to me. She said, my father was in the SS, which means he was in the Nazi uh, paramilitary, well, actually military, uh, internal uh, suppression force. He said, so my father was in the SS, and she said, that's why I thought it was so important to bring my granddaughters here with my daughter, because we can't, we, we can't let anything happen here. We have to keep speaking out. Now, you can say that's pretty extreme, you know, and I know people would say that, and I'm sure there's some people who would say, but this was this woman's own personal experience. She was telling me that as someone who had lived it, she was 
really concerned. And I think if you, I've said often that Trump doesn't just like Putin, he wants to be like Putin. And part of what has been so frustrating to him, he, you know, he, he wasn't all that acquainted with how government works and how cumbersome our system is. Um, you know, I mean, our, our founders actually made it kind of right. complicated so that we wouldn't have somebody ending up as a king or a dictator. Right. So for everybody who gets really frustrated by it, there's a reason why it's frustrating. And, and so, yeah, you, 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 you keep pushing and pulling and trying to get things done, uh, but you don't, ha you know, you have a nation of laws, not a nation of a, a single leader. And I think he was very disappointed to discover that when uh, he uh, uh, got elected. And so, look, I, I just believe that what Putin decided was to do what the Russians have done for decades, but increasingly in Europe, and that is to influence the political process. Now, as I write in the book, one of the few silver linings from what happened uh, in November of 2016 is that once the Europeans saw what happened, they began to put the pieces together. Because remember, right after our election, there was a Dutch election, and the Russians were supporting the far-right anti-Muslim candidate, and he was defeated. Then you had the French election, and Le Pen had gone to Moscow to seek the support of Vladimir Putin. And the French were really smart, and Macron's campaign was really smart, because as soon as he, they, they caught on a lot quicker than a lot of we here in the United States did, because they're used to this. They're used to the Russians messing with their systems. So as soon as they saw what happened, you know, they immediately knew, oh my gosh, they're going to come after us. And remember one of the very first um, revelations from Facebook. Facebook originally said, you know, a lot of water under that dam by now, but originally they said, oh, you know, there were like 400 sites where the Russians were influencing us on Facebook, you know. But there were 50,000 sites in France. Now, eventually, we all know that there were a lot more sites in the United States. That was one of the things we're finding out. But when the French realized that, you know, Macron's campaign was so clever, we just didn't know it. I mean, we couldn't, you know, we, we didn't, ha we were like the first canaries in the coal mine. So what Macron did was to seed his email account with phony emails. And the French also have a law, which turned out to be really helpful in the French election, because WikiLeaks started dropping emails from Macron's campaign the Friday before the Sunday election. But the Americans who were conspiring with the Russians, and the Russians themselves, didn't know about this law, which puts a press blackout on campaign coverage for the final 72 hours. So a lot of, a, a lot of, protections were built into their system and they were able to uh, avoid it. The Germans also were much more aware, but you know, the, the right wing in Germany got, got into the Bundestag. They got more votes than they'd gotten since World War II. So this is nowhere near over. And I will say, this is gonna come back in 2018. And when you think about 
the Congress finally in the summertime passing very stringent sanctions on everybody who had anything to do with interfering in our elections. They passed those sanctions overwhelmingly in both the House and the Senate, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly. Trump was sort of forced into signing them because the pressure was so great. He has not enforced them. Tillerson disbanded the Office on Sanctions that we had in the State Department to enforce sanctions on North Korea and on Iran and in this case on Russia. This is not over. And you know, I don't care whether you're on the right, the left, or the center of the, our political spectrum in America. No American should want a foreign government conspiring with whoever they're conspiring with mm -hmm, in right. our country to undermine our elections. That absolutely must be stopped. Um, well, let's accept, on another topic, let's accept that the GOP Congress will almost certainly not do anything about the 18 women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual abuse. Do you think that there's more that the congressional Democrats can do to bring pressure to bear on a self-proclaimed sexual predator? Yeah. I, again, mean that nicely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he did confess on the Hollywood Access tapes, right? You know. He did. Look, I, I, I think that unless, unless some, I, I think some um, of the accusers have brought lawsuits uh -huh. uh, that are working their way through the court. I think that um, the Republicans are, being forced to have to respond, and some are finally saying, well, these women should have their chance to be heard. Mm -hmm. I think that Nikki the- Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley did that uh, yeah. yesterday on the yeah. Sunday shows. By accident. Um, yeah. but, but I wanna go back to what I said earlier. If, after they get their tax bill, you know, which they have been yearning for, I mean, can you imagine like waking up in the morning and saying, today, <laughs> today, I'm gonna give the Koch brothers everything they've ever wanted. <laughs> and in order to do that, I'm going to take away the deduction that teachers had so that when they bought supplies for their classrooms, they could deduct it. I'm gonna take away the the extra medical cost deductions that people with really serious health problems have. I'm, I, you know, I, can you, I, I just find it impossible to understand this, and yet this is what they live for, so here's my hope. <laughs> I mean, some of these, I, I don't know about in Washington state, but in other states, some of the Democratic, or some of the Republican members of the House are on record saying, well, I have to be for it or my donors won't take my right. phone calls. Right. Honestly, you know, get a life. If, 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 <laughs> uh, if the only people that you call are your donors. Um, anyway, the, if they get this through, which I'm still hoping they won't, that's my hope. If they don't, I'm hoping that, you know, some of the Republican in the Senate will stand up against them finally. Uh, but anyway, 
if they get it through, they really have nothing left to do. They, they don't care about anything else. I mean, I do hope they will reauthorize CHIP. I would like to see that done. Um, and, and really, the, the, only thing that, that, the only thing that they can do, which is really horrible, is to begin to cut back on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and food stamps and the safety net and all the rest of it. So we want to keep them busy with other things. <laughs> and therefore, I think, as they look at November of 2018, when all the House is up and a third of the Senate is up, they might say to themselves, you know, we've got to look at least like we care. And so on these issues and maybe a few other issues, like the emoluments issue and things that are still out there, maybe they will uh, be more willing to speak out. Now, I don't know that the leadership in either the House or the Senate would ever have hearings, which is why it's really important that we take back the House in 2018 and then, you know, then we'd have leaders um, on committees who would actually uh, be interested in these issues. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's the courts and the press, they're going to keep, uh, keep it alive. Yeah. Um, we're running a little bit out of time now, oh but um, <laughs> um, I have a few questions. I really, I, just out of, I'm just so curious for you to tell me what Angela Merkel's like. <laughs> okay. I love, and we can go a little longer because you know it's it's just it's just us. Um, I am a huge fan and admirer and a friend of Angela Merkel. I mean, one of the, you know, really one of the many sadnesses about not uh, actually becoming president is I wanted so much to work with her. I've known her for about oh, more than 20 years. I knew her as a very young minister in Helmut Kohl's uh, government in Germany. I watched her as she rose through the ranks uh, of the Christian Democratic Party in Germany. I spent time with her both in the 90s and then um, as a senator and certainly a lot of time with her as Secretary of State. She is a very um, serious, focused person who is trying to balance a lot of you know, very serious pressures, domestic pressures, international pressures, what's happening in Europe and around the world. I think she's been masterful and emerged as you know, the, the principal leader of Europe and, and now, of course, you know, one of the people standing up for Western values uh, internationally. But she's also fun. She has a twinkle in her eyes. She can be good company. I've had dinner with her and her husband. They're, you know, she, she, they're really delightful people. They try to, uh, you know, she tries to keep her weekends as free as a leader of a big country can keep her weekends um, so that, you know, she and her husband can go to the store and buy food. And, and of course, like many Europeans, she likes to take the whole month of August off, which is, I think, great. And uh, so in addition to being a very uh, thoughtful, smart, creative leader in keeping uh, you know, Germany uh, growing and 
you know, exporting, which is their main uh, economic engine. Uh, she is a good politician, and she is a really thoughtful, uh, fun uh, person to be around. So I, I'm, very, I'm very excited that she is still there. Now, she still has, she's trying to put a government together yeah. right now. Yeah. It's not, you know, it, it, I mean, we have this silly thing called the Electoral College, as you all know. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, it, I, I've been against it. I came out publicly against it in 2000, you know, a long time ago. But they have to put together coalitions, and that can often be really painful. And so she's still struggling after this most recent election to put together a coalition. But I have confidence in her, and I'm, you know, I'm really glad she's there. We, we need her very much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am not one of those Christians who's heavily into forgiveness. I'm um, reform. And so my um, Susan Sarandon and Ralph Nader needs. Uh, wait, I was going to say my Susan Sarandon and Ralph Nader needs remain low. Yeah. But um, that's just me. I, I think you may be better at forgiveness because you've had to be. But I. Having said that about Ralph Nader, I've always agreed with what he said, that any, any social revolution is ignited by one to three percent of the population spilling out into the streets. And we saw that with the really life-giving Women's March. Yes, yes. And I think maybe the most important question I'll ask you tonight is um, what are the three most significant things that the 3,000 of us here and the 65 million of us in the, in the greater the big outside can do that are, you know, we take the action and then the insight follows and, and faith without works absolutely meaningless. And what are the three most significant actions we as a people of justice and decency can do starting now? Yeah. Oh, I think that's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves. And uh, one is do not lose heart. Mm -hmm. Do not get discouraged. Do not give up. Do not get overwhelmed by the stream of what seem to be um, inexplicably mean-spirited, hateful kinds of actions and words that we're deluged with. Uh, and this is hard for people. You know, if you're motivated by bigotry and hatred and, mm -hmm. and greed and jealousy and envy, I mean, if you're motivated by those negative emotions, you can keep going a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. But if you are trying to, you know, be a positive person, if you're trying to make a positive difference, if you're trying to, you know, bring people to some common ground where we can take action together, you're going to be constantly disappointed. You're going to be constantly um, undermined. The energy it takes to wake up and be positive in the face of all this negativity really does require uh, an enormous commitment. Mm -hmm. But there is no alternative. And it is so important that people who are on the side of uh, 
uh, trying to reclaim our values, stand up for them, uh, be compassionate, care about each other, all of the things that I happen to think are a good way to live and also lasting uh, values that we should be uh, promoting. Find groups of people, friends, family members, colleagues who can keep you going when you're down and you can keep them going when they're down. I mean, don't, don't give in and don't give up. And, We have to sustain this. The second thing is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you know, democracy is messy. As I said, it's meant to be messy. Mm -hmm. Compromise is at the core of it. And of course, you know, I wish everybody believed what I believed and they would do what I would like them to do, but that is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a, a theocracy or a dictatorship. That's not the way democracy works. And so when people go into democracy, whether it's being an advocate or being an activist or being a political figure or even a public uh, servant, and it's their way or no way, that is outside the bounds of what we should be working to achieve. It doesn't mean you give up your values, but making progress, you know, in the 90s, I wanted us to get to universal health care. I mean, I worked my heart out to get us there. And I, I mean, I, I wish we had gotten there. I really do. I mean, it was what my, my hope and goal was. We didn't succeed. But then I turned around and said, okay, what can we get done? And that's when I began working with both Democrats and Republicans for the Children's Health Insurance Program. And that has actually, that has really helped many, many millions of kids. So sometimes you don't get a full loaf, even a half a loaf. Sometimes you're left with a slice. But in this system of ours, seizing that, keeping that, protecting that, and then taking on more and moving forward is really what has to be done. And you can't be convinced that if we don't get it all, therefore it's not uh, legitimate. Because eventually we will if we stay the course and we stay committed and uh, active. And then, I mean, the third thing is so simple, and I mentioned it earlier, everybody you know just harass them to make sure they're registered to vote. Absolutely harass them. And, you know, we're, we're about to have what's called a midterm election in 2018, right? And historically, Democrats don't turn out in midterm elections. And so Republicans do uh, more than usual, and they elect governors and legislatures and secretaries of state and attorneys general. And then those folks get to work to gerrymander congressional districts and to suppress voters. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up and you wonder, well, hey, how did that happen? Well, it happened because not enough people voted for those who would be more uh, pro-democracy, more pro-equality, more pro-fairness. And it's something that you have to just accept is, kind of the, the burden, the price, the, the privilege of citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we just had a great election in Virginia, if yes. uh, you follow that. And 
There were a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, I won Virginia, I was very happy to win Virginia, but I will tell you there were a lot of people who when they woke up that day after the election, they said, okay, I'm never gonna let that happen again. And they turned out and <clears throat> they turned out all over the state and they elected people. And here's another part of this. They couldn't have elected people if people hadn't run. Mm -hmm. And they elected people, predominantly women, in districts where Democrats hadn't even fielded people because they didn't think it was going to be successful. And so, you know, that, I mean, I, I get accused sometimes of, you know, being kind of like, okay, she's pragmatic and she's practical. Well, partly because, you know, I've been fighting to get things done my entire life, and I know that you, 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 you just can't ever give up, and you have to do all of the, you know, all of the bits and pieces that will build towards success. So I guess, you know, don't get weary doing good. That's an old Bible verse that I particularly like. Uh, so sustain your energy. Uh, be involved in every way you can uh, to kind of keep the momentum going. Uh, and of course, you know, get everyone you know to register to vote and then make sure they do vote. And we will take back the House and maybe the Senate in 2018 if we do that. One of my great lifelong heroes has been Gloria Steinem. And I was saved by the women's movement in the same way people are saved by Jesus or Buddha when I was 16 years old. And, um, and I got to meet Gloria and I asked her, told her that we were gonna meet finally and be together on stage and I asked her if she could ask you anything, what would it be? Well, she sent an answer, but I have to read it to you. Okay. So this is Gloria's question for you. And you kind of answered it, but. It seems to me the weakest point in our democracy are state legislatures, where right-wing Republicans redistrict themselves into congressional perpetuity, as racist Democrats in the South also did, where the insurance industry, the last major economic interest to be unregulated federally, doesn't this sound like Gloria? Yeah. <laughs> um, has such power that it can defeat everything from the ERA to single-payer healthcare, not to mention building prisons we don't need with money that should have gone to state universities, thus kids graduating with huge debt, and if the, if the Republican tax bill passes, uh, and where we could get rid of the electoral, don't get me started, Hillary. Um, and, and, and where we could get rid of the electoral college by voting to give all electoral votes to the majority vote winner, and I could go on and on. So my question is, what should we do to democratize our state legislatures, and will you take charge of helping us do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I've been, I've been really excited by groups that have sprung up in the last yeah. year. Uh, who are focused on state legislatures. And uh, through this organization I started on, we're together, we're supporting some of them because it's really important to focus on those state level yeah. elections. Yeah. And Gloria is absolutely right. Uh, because if, here I'll tell you something really scary. Um, you could call a constitutional convention with 34 states. This is one of the goals of the right-wing billionaire cabal 
<clears throat> that uh, basically uh, runs things in Washington. And they have been pursuing it assiduously for years. And they got close. Because if you have a state, a Republican state legislature and a Republican governor, and that's what a very big majority of our states now have, you can vote to want to have a constitutional convention. I cannot imagine anything scarier right now than to have a constitutional convention that is called by a uh, majority of Republican-led states and backed by billionaires like the Mercers and the Kochs and others. So the legislatures really matter. And I think you all just had a special election in Washington. And uh, you, were, you, were, you were able to you know, begin to you know, reassert uh, democratic control in uh, the legislature here in this state. And you know, I, don't, I don't worry about you know, Washington, because you're not hopefully ever going to have a completely Republican legislature and a Republican governor at the same time. But don't take that for granted, because the way that, the way that elections are now being fought out uh, in, in the press uh, and online is really different. And it's changed dramatically in the 25 years that I've been actively involved. People get their information primarily from their online activity. So the biggest platform for news in our country is Facebook. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to weaponize information and send it to people's Facebook pages, making it look like news, you can really mess with people's heads and influence their votes. You know, when people say to me, well, but did all the stuff the Russians and the Trump people and their allies do affect the outcome of the election? I always say, well, do you think advertising affects how people make decisions? Mm -hmm. Well, of course it does. Mm -hmm. People don't spend billions of dollars advertising just because they want to see their products on uh, you know, broadcast or print or online media. They do it because they know they can get inside people's heads and slowly influence them. So running elections now is going to be as much a head game as anything yeah. else. Uh -huh. And it's going to really matter how equipped people are to recognize uh, fact from fiction, mm -hmm. to reject falsehoods, uh, to not be uh, persuaded that this good person running for the state legislature uh, in Tacoma, who you think is a good person, you've read about her, you like her, all of a sudden now there's all this stuff in your Facebook uh, feed which says that, you know, she's a terrible person. I mean, I came out of the State Department with a 69% approval rating, and by the time they got done with me, you would have thought that I'd been in prison. And that's where they wanted me to be, but they, you know, they tried very hard, you know, to, to sort of make the case that somehow I was illegitimate, I was this, I was that. And I have to tell you, well, I'll finish with this story because I'm making the point about elections now really need people to be actively involved and very careful, skeptical about the information you're getting. So during the campaign, so many of my friends from literally my childhood uh, to my adulthood 
went knocking on doors. They'd knock on doors in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida and all sorts of places. And they started kind of coming back to me and saying, you know, I, I, was, I knocked on 100 doors on Saturday and like on 10 doors, people would say, no, I can't vote for her. She kills people and, you know. <laughs> And so, you know, this happened to my best friend from sixth grade. So she goes, no, she doesn't. <laughs> and the person she's talking to says, oh, yes, she does. I saw it on the internet. Or think about this, the absolutely despicable Pizzagate, right? Now think about it, because enough people believed it that it affected how they thought about me and my campaign. Mm -hmm. One person believed it so much that he got in his car in North Carolina with his automatic weapons and drove to Washington, mm -hmm. determined to free the children who were being held captive in the basement of the pizzeria. Now, he got to the pizzeria. There was no basement. There were no children. But he still shot up the place. Luckily, nobody was hurt. So I, I mention this as hard-earned experience. I never thought anybody would believe any of that stuff, but I'm not a sophisticated Russian intelligence operation that knows how to weaponize information, knows how to take stolen material like the emails of my campaign chairman, and where he talks about pizza make up a whole ludicrous story about running a child trafficking ring. I I don't do that. I don't understand that. I never have seen that. But I've never lived in Russia either. And so think about it. This is what we are up against. So a question that starts out about state legislatures, now the other side knows we're going to fight for every state legislative seat. And so they're going to be playing the same games there that they played in the presidential campaign. Um, they want us to wrap up, but they're not the boss of us. That's right. right. And um, <laughs> um, we had talked about, and I still hope that we can end up on the subject of hope. Yes. And um, there's something in your book about a sermon that reminds me of that beautiful Emily Dickinson line that hope inspires the good to reveal itself. And I had asked if, if you'd like to be read to, and if I could read you this poem <clears throat> by the great American-Palestinian poet, Naomi Nye, Naomi Shihab Nye. It's a little long, though, but is that okay? Sure. And do you yeah. like to be read to? Sure. Okay. <laughs> this is, I think, the great modern poem on hope, and the last name is Nye, Naomi Nye. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal, after learning my flight had been detained for four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate, so I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. Shadoa Shabiuk Habidi Stani Shwe Min Fadlik Shubit Siwi. 
The minute she heard my words, she knew. However poorly used, she knew them and she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her. Then she talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Then we called my dad and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic <laughs> and found out, of course, that they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I knew <laughs> <laughs> and let them chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling me about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and she was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar. <laughs> and smiling, there is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, <laughs> and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice, and they were all covered with the same powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, so, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary people and I thought, this is the world I wanna live in the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug those, all those other women too. And this can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So I wondered if oh, you could I like that. Oh, I like that. Yeah. as we go out from here to love and serve the poor and the marginalized and the elderly and the little ones. Tell us where your hope springs from and why you are a woman and a grandmother of hope. I, um, I, I think it does spring from, you know, the you know, the twin sources of my family and my faith. And people who followed the campaign or have already read the book know that, um, you know, my mother had a really miserable childhood. She was neglected and abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, her young parents uh, were just not interested in her or her little sister. And so they would leave, leave them alone for long periods and were seemingly indifferent to them. And then finally decided they didn't want them at all. And 
sent my mother, who was then eight, in charge of her five-year-old sister alone on the train from Chicago to Los Angeles. And I write in the book about the image that I've always had of what it must have been like, because this would have been, you know, like in 1927, uh, being alone on a train in charge of your little sister, being made to feel that the most important people in your life didn't love you and didn't want you, uh, how that, how that could have been survivable. Where did hope come from that? And then when my mother got to her paternal grandparents' home, they didn't want her either. And there were years of mistreatment and punishments and clear messages of being unwanted until finally when she was 14, my mother left her grandparents' home and got a job as a housekeeper babysitter in another home. I did not know any of this when I was a little girl. All I knew is that she was my mom and she was fun and wonderful and I thought could do anything and I was obviously so supported and cared for uh, because of that unconditional love. But as I got older and I learned more about her life, I remember asking her, um, how did you, how did you survive that? How did you, how did you not become bitter and broken and mean and hateful? Because that's really what you saw around you. And she said, at every point along my life when I was very young, somebody showed me kindness. And she said, you know, in first grade, in, in those days, you know, she would have been, I guess, you know, like, it would have been like 1925, 26. Mm -hmm. She, they would eat their lunch. They would bring their lunch from their homes. They would eat their lunch at their desks. And after a while, the teacher noticed my mother never had any lunch. And she didn't have a penny for the milk. And so, without embarrassing her, without signaling her out, uh, the teacher one day said, well, you know, Dorothy, I've brought too much food. Would you like my extra sandwich and my extra milk? Mm -hmm. And so that teacher, that first grade teacher, then fed my mother for the rest of the year. And even when she went to work in that home of the other family, which, you know, to our mind sounds really harsh, a 14-year-old girl basically becoming a servant mm -hmm. um, for room and board. But the woman of the home knew that my mother wanted to go to high school. So she said, you know, if you get, your, you get up early, you get your chores done, you get the kids up and ready, you can go to high school. So for four years, that's what my mother did. She'd get up early, she'd get her chores done, and she literally would run to high school. And then when it was over, she would run back. And it was the first time that she ever saw a family where the parents loved and cared for each other and the children. Mm -hmm. So for her, it was a great gift. Mm -hmm. So when I think about hope, I think about very small acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. um, 
like the poet coming and translating for the Palestinian woman crying on the floor and the women in the gate area taking the cookies from a total stranger who happened to have a headscarf on, for goodness sakes. I think about those tiny acts of kindness, that recognition of one another's humanity, the sense that, yes, you know, we, we are all in this together, whether some try to deny it or remove themselves from it, we are. And that is at the core of my hope. My mother's story, you know, my faith journey, uh, like you, I'm a Christian. I care deeply about uh, the, the tenets and the obligations and the hopefulness of uh, my faith. And so I, I feel like we can be hopeful. And I've been in so many situations so much worse than what people worry about going on in our country right now. It's, it's odd for us because we've never seen an effort at unchecked power like this. We've never seen a disregard for people of different races, ethnicities, religions, and, and the, you know, the sexism and, and the nastiness and everything. We, we've not, we haven't seen it at this level. So of course it's very disconcerting and troubling, and yet we have, we have the ability to act against it, to be the checks and balances on it. And I've been to so many places in the world where I have seen hope in the midst of the worst of humanity. So when I went to uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to Eastern Congo, where for 15 years a conflict raged that cost probably five and a half million lives. Mm. And I visited a refugee camp where people had been driven out of their own little homesteads uh, by militias fighting one another. And I met with people in the camp and we were there to make sure that they were getting the nutrition they needed and they had the, you know, the shelter they needed and all the rest of it. But I remember talking to uh, a woman in the camp and I said, well, what can we do for you? What, what do you need? She said, we need a school. Mm -hmm. So even in the midst of this horrible dislocation where family members had been murdered, where women had been raped and abused, she was thinking about the future and about hope for her children. And then when I went to a hospital that cared for the women who had been so brutally assaulted and incredibly brutalized in ways that we can't even imagine ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I saw them dancing and singing. Mm -hmm. I saw such hope. Mm -hmm. And I, I've seen that in so many places where the worst has happened. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it is only just an individual that is able to call that resilience and that sense of possibility up out of him or herself. And it can translate into helping another person, and then that creates the spark of hope, which then can be you know, communicated far and wide. And sometimes it's, you know, in the darkest of times, someone who refuses to be turned into an animal, refuses to be beaten into uh, a, an oppressor, you know, forced to be a cruel 
instrument of someone else's uh, power madness. And that is a spark of hope. So mm -hmm. I guess for me, I was raised by a mother who exemplified that hope and that love and that kindness. And I have seen so much of that despite the difficulties that we all encounter in our lives. And I just think it's practically impossible for me to imagine living without hope. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean I don't get discouraged mm -hmm. and I don't feel really bad and I'm mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. depressed about yeah. the stuff that's going on. All of that happens, right. believe right. me. Um, but then something else happens, mm -hmm. like the people in my lines at my book signings or mm -hmm. the young woman who comes up and says, you know, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I find hope everywhere, and I hope all of you do as well. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. And thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>